Amen and amen. Well, if you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the, to the book of Amos and chapter 7 as we continue to make our way through this great Old Testament prophet. With the Word of God open, let's pray to God. O Lord, our God and our Father, You are the God who hears prayer. You answer prayer. You say, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. Ask, it shall be given to you. Seek, you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And we must confess, O Lord God, that we often approach prayer in a way that is that must make the angels gasp how little we pray, how confused are our prayers, O Lord our God. Our prayers betray our true theology, where we are, how we stand before God and before men, our understanding of the Lord, our understanding of your plan, your purposes, your providence, and the place you make for second causes in working out your decrees and your purposes. And we pray this evening, O Lord God, that you will use this sermon to challenge me and the people here before me, to redouble our prayers, to be more earnest, O God, when it comes to bowing our knee before the Father of Spirits and calling upon the throne of grace, we might find grace to help and mercy in a time of need. And we offer these prayers, O Lord God, this evening, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they'd finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this, it shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. And it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, I, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. 
the land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock. The Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. I therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fly by the sword, and or shall I fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel, and it will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. Do you know what you are doing when you pray? So many Christians don't. So many Christians are very confused about the place of prayer in God's purposes. And there are two extremes. On the one hand, you have Christians who believe that prayer moves the hand that moves the world in kind of a first-call sense of things, that God's in heaven ruling the world, and He's planning to do this, and then we speak to Him, and He goes, oh, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought about that. <coughs> yes, we'll do that. And Christians stand up and full of a sense of their own authority. They'll bind this, and they'll bind that, and they'll proclaim this, and it's almost as if prayer forces God's hand to do things He never thought of before. That's one extreme. On the other side of the fence, which is where I suspect most of us fall, um, those Christians who believe in the sovereign Lord of the universe, who works all things after the counsel of His will, Nothing is too small. He controls all creatures and actions and things from the greatest all the way down to the least. His works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whatever way He wills as a watercourse. He's established His throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. And a thousand verses like that the Lord is enthroned in heaven. He does according to His will in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what is this that you have done, right? And we as Reformed Christians can take those verses and become too Reformed to pray because we think if God already knows, why pray? And if God was already going to do what God is already going to do, what is the purpose of little old me beating the air with my little old prayers? And I would be very, very surprised if there's not a, a large number of people in this room, and one of them might be in the pulpit from day to day, who is too reformed to pray because we think, what's the point? God is too big. I am too small. Why waste my breath and the Almighty's patience? Because God will do whatever I will do, whatever He will do. Does that describe you this evening? When you pray, do you, are you confident that you know what you are trying to do? Too often, Christians are like private first-class Feldmayer. Now, this is from the book Joker One, which is about a, a, a marine platoon in Ramadi. 
and the, the, the call sign for that platoon was Joker, and Joker 1 is the first lieutenant in charge of the platoon. platoon. And when they first went to Ramadi, they were essentially expecting to be on a, on a humanitarian mission, and it quickly uh, changed when they got up one morning and heard the call to prayer from the minarets all over the city calling um, the Muslims to jihad, 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 jihad. And they then knew they were in for a fight. And there was tremendous conflict there and in Fallujah where Kyle was at the same time. Kyle Lockhart, our associate here. And I need to edit this a little bit because it's got, it's got military language in it, shall we say. But the first time that Joker 1 and his platoon engaged a terrorist force, there was a tremendous ambush and trouble and uh, afterwards, after they won the fight and the, the dust was settling, um, Joker 1, the first lieutenant, called in. He said he's calling Joker COC, which is the center of command. Joker COC, this is Joker 1, actual. Be advised, we have the situation at the center well in hand. Break. Then the captain replies. One actual, this is six actual. If you ever put that moron on the radio again, I will bleeping kill you. I repeat. I will bleeping kill you. I have no idea what's going on down there. I've had to listen to this driveling idiot for the past 10 minutes. I have no idea how many enemy you're facing, how many casualties you have, or what the bleep is going on in general. You had better start talking right bleeping now and right bleeping fast, Joker 1. That moron referred to Feldmayr. Unbeknownst to me, during our entire brief firefight, he had been manning the radio, for in an earlier moment of lunacy on my part, I had agreed to Nor Isle's request to, to let our narcoleptic marine take the platoon's soul radio. Now, narcolepsy is somebody who falls asleep at all these weird times, and Feltmar would fall asleep all the time. And so in an effort to keep him awake, he gave him the radio. It was a last-ditch effort to find some continuous activity that would keep our somnolent marine awake. But I clearly hadn't thought through the implications of making private first-class Feltmar the critical lifeline to our higher headquarters. Nearly the entire time we had been under fire, the private first class had been screaming frantically into the radio, they're attacking us, they're attacking us, the fire's all around, everywhere, ah! <laughs> the captain had been frustrated, and rightfully so, and he hadn't hesitated to let me know. And sometimes I think like that Somnolent Marine, in our prayers we aren't really sure what we're supposed to do or what we're supposed to say. And in that regard, Amos 7 is of tremendous help to us. This chapter is a watershed between the two halves of the book. In the first six chapters of Amos, you've been having the forecast of approaching judgment. God's been warning Israel. His judgment is coming. His judgment is coming. His judgment is coming. And he's been uh, punctuating these warnings of judgment with calls to repent. In chapter 3, God says, A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? God's saying, My words are not empty. Amos is saying, God has spoken. I have to tell you, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Chapter 4, Amos records his frustration that Israel would not listen. God says, yet you have not returned to me. God struck them and says, yet you did not return. I, I sent blight upon you, yet you did not return. And again and again, that chapter, remember, there's that punctuation of, yet you did not return to me. Then in chapter 5, God pleads with Israel, seek me and live. Don't go down to Bethel. If you go to Bethel, your false worship and trying to kind of worship your way back to God, your own religion by your own scheme for, to your own ends and for your own pleasure, that's no way to find God. That's just a way to multiply and make your sin worse. And then in chapter 6, in our last message, you remember, and we see a people who are at ease in Zion. They're falling asleep, lulled into a false sense of security, presuming upon God's mercy. A little bit like the dog um, that Wesley saw at the, black, at the blacksmith's um, shop. John Wesley was getting his horse shoed. He left his horse in on a Monday, 
And there was a new dog that the blacksmith had adopted, a stray dog, and it was lying tied beneath the anvil. And the, the blacksmith is hammering the, the, the molten steel, and there are sparks flying everywhere in the shop. And the dog is just howling, and, and is just totally crazy. And then he, in between the dog's shrieks, Wesley says, how long till the horse is ready? And he said, I'll come back tomorrow or the next day. And so Wesley came back on Wednesday to get his horse. And then Wednesday he goes back in again and the horse is fast asleep at the foot of the anvil as the, ha- as the blacksmith is hammering away on various pieces of metal. And so often Christians can be like that under the sound of judgment and preaching. They fall asleep and have no idea of their danger. And that's the people here in the book of Amos. So the first six chapters contain this forecast of approaching judgment. And we're about to move into a section in chapter 8 of the fury of actual judgment. The forecast of approaching judgment is gone, and now we have the fury of actual judgment, like we read there in chapter 8, verse 1. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit that's ripe for judgment, essentially. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And he said, I see a a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence like that awful scene at the start of Jaws where the girl is in the water and she's attacked by the shark member at nighttime and there's this thrashing and there's a screaming and then suddenly, silence. And God is coming and he's pouring out his wrath upon Israel and there's screaming and there's wailing and there's thrashing and suddenly then as the judgment passes by, it's just eerie silence, complete obliteration. And in between the forecast of approaching judgment and the fury of actual judgment, you have chapter 7, in which Amos prays for God to restrain his judgment. It reminds me of Henry Martin, the famous missionary to India. His, His quote, Mercy hath a heaven and justice hath a hell to display themselves to all eternity, but long-suffering hath only a short-lived earth. God's love endures forever, we read this morning on our call to worship, but God's patience does not. It does run out. And the message of of, of Amos 7 is to set before us the place of prayer. God's judgment is coming. His patience is waning. Therefore, Pray, pray. Pray because of who God is. Pray because of what God has promised to do. Engage God to be patient while the gospel does its work. And the amazing thing is, as we see this chapter, is the power for prayer, power of prayer to move God, not independently of God. What we learn in this passage is that God reveals his judgment in order to stir up his prayer, sorry, to stir up our prayers in order to restrain his judgment. God reveals his judgment with the express purpose of stirring up our prayers with the purpose of, to the end, that his judgment will be restrained, not removed, of course, but restrained. And so Amos gives a great example to us as ministers, as elders, and as people. An example to us of what Christ does for us, our great high priest, standing between the forecast of judgment and the fury of judgment and praying for the restraint of judgment. Christ prays for you like this. And at the same time, it's an example to us and an encouragement to us to follow Christ's example and to pray. The man who was God and the God who became man. And yet, though in Christ God becomes small, remember 
The Muslims tell you God is great, but only Jesus can tell you God is also small, as small as a baby. And yet he's not so small in his humanity and not so large in his deity that he still needs to pray as the God-man, getting up early and retiring to a wilderness place to seek and to call upon the name of God. So the first thing I want you to see this, morning, this evening in our sermon is that God stirs up prayer by threatening judgment. Notice, it wasn't that Amos walked out one day and thought, oh, I know, I'll pray and ask God to restrain his judgment. No, God came and he shows Amos three and actually four. You'll see three times the phrase, this is what the Lord showed me. Verse one, verse four, verse seven, and then chapter eight, verse one. There are four revelations of judgment that are coming. This is what God, the prayer begins with the revelation of God's Word. It doesn't begin with us. It wasn't Amos's idea. It wasn't Amos beginning to wrestle with God. It wasn't Amos giving God a new idea of mercy. No, God put the idea of judgment into Amos's head in order to stir Amos's soul up to pray. This is what the Lord God showed me. And the word Lord God there is, is it's, it's Yahweh Adonai. Yahweh, remember from Exodus 3, that name of God, the, the, perhaps the most holy name of all God's names. He's Yahweh Elohei Avraham, Elohei Yahuv, Elohei Yitzhak. He's Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And you remember Yahweh is built on the verb to be. He says, um, I will be whatever I will be. And you put those two things together, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will be whatever I will be. And God says, this is my memorial name to all generations. You remember we preached that a few, a while ago, I forget, before my vacation. But we said that, what, you put all that together in Exodus, and what God is saying is, when he calls himself Yahweh, he's saying, I will be whatever I need to be to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever. He's welded their name to his name. So if Abraham ceases to be, or Isaac ceases to be, or Jacob ceases to be, or any of the true people of God descending from them, remember it's those who are of faith or Abraham's seed, any of those who believe coming from Abraham, if any of them are ever lost, then God has lost a piece of himself because he's welded us to himself. An Old Testament doctrine, his name and our name are joined together. But it finds fulfillment, you remember, in the New Testament in our union with Christ. We believe into Christ. We are baptized into the name, not the names, but the name of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We're united to him. Which means in a, in a, in a real sense, we become partakers of the divine nature in a way that Peter says, and I can't fully explain. But we're part of him. He is the head. We are the body. And if God loses you, he loses a part of his son. All of that is summed up in shorthand in the term Yahweh. I will be whatever I need to be to be your God forever. Whatever, whatever lengths I need to go, whatever burdens I need to carry, whatever price I need to pay, that determination will send the Son of God to hell on the cross to fulfill the name of God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will damn his own son in order to save his adopted sons. There's no length he will not travel to be true to his name and his commitment to weld you and you and you and you to his name in Christ. All of that is summed up in the word Yahweh. Every time you see the word Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D in the Scriptures, that's what it's getting to. Um, like a drop-down list. It says much more than just one word. The whole gospel's in that one word. And then God, it's Lord God in the English, but it's Yahweh Adonai. 
Um, Adonai is the, is the, the um, Hebrew word that describes the absolute overwhelming sovereignty of God. He is one who does what he pleases. I saw the Lord, Adonai, high and lifted up. And this sovereign God of the covenant reveals Himself to the prophet. This is what the Lord God showed me. He's re- the Lord God is revealing Himself, not just His judgment. He's Yahweh Adonai, and He's revealing judgment to Amos. And He does it three distinct times. Now, why is God doing that? I think there's two reasons. I think, he's, first of all, he's testing the heart of Amos. I mean, Amos is a man who's been rejected. Remember in, in, in Amos 5.10, he said, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Amos is ministering to the northern tribes of Israel who have determined to reject his message and to hate his person. How will he respond? I've been there in a previous ministry. There was a a small um, cadre of ladies who determined to reject my preaching. And the leader later, after things came apart at the seams, later admitted after I'd left the church with the right foot of Christian fellowship, but um, she admitted that it was her, her reaction to the preaching was mostly conviction of sin. But whenever I was preaching, it was like, you know, in an Apple computer, when you bring your, you, the, the cursor down to the bottom of the screen, you have all of your little um, icons at the bottom of the screen. And when you bring your, your cursor down, the icon you're touching gets much bigger. As I was preaching in this congregation, she and her cadre of ladies, it was almost as if their heads became much bigger when I was preaching, and it was very distracting because they would look at me like with, if, if looks could kill, I'd have been dead a long time ago. And it was very distracting. And if God had come and said, I am going to wipe them off the face of the earth, I might have said to myself, well, you know, Lord, they have it coming to them. <laughs> They'll know I was right all along. Um, There was one time at the height of the controversy I was preaching on on actually Genesis 6, the flood of Noah, and one of the worst thunderstorms that had ever happened had come down in Yazzie City that night, and I'm preaching, and literally every time I finished a sentence, it was like thunder, and one of the children, not one of mine, but one of the children of the church said, that was amazing, everything, after every time Pastor Stewart spoke, there was like an answer of thunder, and... uh, somewhat gratifying. Well, you could imagine, right? (laughs) Um, You could imagine um, Amos saying, they have it coming, Lord. Wipe them off the face of the earth. Then everybody will know that I am your prophet and that your word is true through me. And how many would have prayed that along with him? And yet, just like Jesus upon the cross, Amos's response demonstrates he's a man after God's own heart. A God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn from their evil ways and live. And so Amos doesn't gloat. He prays, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so, so small. So God's testing the heart of the prophet. It's convicting. Maybe you're here this evening, and maybe you've got an unconverted covenant child who's really provoked your ire. They're hateful to you. They despise you. They they curse you up and down. They reject your authority. And maybe you're so angry with them, you've stopped praying for them. That's not the way of the Lord Jesus. It's not the way of Amos. The heart of God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked among the people of God, but that they turn and live. And um, Amos understands that, and it fashions and forms his, his 
doctrine of God and also his doctrine of prayer, that those two extremes at the start, if God, prayer moves the hand of God, I give God ideas for his to-do list, is that one extreme. And the other extreme, if God already knows why I bother praying, well, those are two extremes that are false, but in the middle is the golden mean, which is a sense that God is the first cause of all things. And as the first cause, first cause, God has revealed Himself to Amos and to us. He's spoken about His character. He's spoken about His purposes. And the God who's revealed Himself in the Bible is a God who said, judgment is deserved and judgment is coming. That's one truth. But at the other side of the spectrum, that same God has said, but mercy is my favorite work. And judgment is my strange work, Isaiah says. And so God has these two as a conundrum. Judgment is deserved, but mercy is desired. And prayer stands in between the judgment that's deserved and is coming and the mercy God desires and says, O Lord God, be true to yourself, be true to your people, and show mercy in the face of deserved judgment. And God answers Not because God is provoked into doing something he never thought of before. No, the God who threatened judgment does so to stir up prayer because he intends, he intends to answer that prayer and to stay judgment. And yet, in our doctrine of prayer, we've got to realize that prayer is absolutely essential to the fulfillment of God's plans. God makes use of second causes. How essential was the bullet that killed John F. Kennedy? It was quite essential, right? God determined that man would die on that day by that means, but the bullet was absolutely essential. Second causes are made use of by God, and they're essential. It's why we pray for our daily bread, but it's also why we cook it and cut it up and eat it. Because God's sovereignty does not undermine our responsibility and our activity. As I've said before many times, it was God's will that this particular glass of bottle of water and this particular glass would be in this pulpit on this particular night and that I would sip this water at this time and those water atoms, H2O, would be from this cup in my, in my stomach now. God decreed that from before the foundation of the world and yet me lifting up this cup and doing this was absolutely essential to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God being fulfilled. There's a deep mystery there, but it underscores God's sovereignty, our responsibility, and the real and true power of prayer that we often forget to our peril, because James says, you have not because you ask not. So that's the first thing. God stirs up prayer by threatening judgment. Then secondly, God uses prayer to restrain his judgment. Amos presents a reasoned argument to God. He's not thrashing about like that somnolent marine, not knowing what to say or why. Now, Abraham approaches, he he makes use of the revelation of God. And he turns that revelation of God around and sends it back to God. Like in a game of tennis, when one player knocks the ball to you, you don't take the ball, put it in your pocket, and go out to the shop and buy a new ball. No, you hit the ball back, they hit at you. Game of tennis. Well, prayer is a game of divine tennis. God fires or hits truth in your direction. And when the truth comes over the net into your heart and mind, what do you do? You hit the truth back to God. That's prayer. And do you see, that's exactly what Amos does here. This is what the Lord God showed me. Now, how does, he, how does Amos begin his prayer? What, what am I going to call God? <laughs> I know. I'm going to call God what he has just called himself. Oh, Lord God. He's laying hold of the sovereign covenant God. And God has just come with these three escalating 
pictures of judgment. I forgot to tell you that earlier in the previous one. Forgive me. The first is locusts coming at a very vulnerable time. The latter growth was just beginning. So in, the, in those days, the first fruit would be taken, given to the king. as kind of his tax almost. And then after that, there'd be a spurt of growth that would fructify the harvest for the common people. And just at that moment when it would be devastating for the common man, the locusts descend or are going to descend and gobble up the harvest. And Amos sees a divinely sent um, blight upon this critical harvest at this critical time. Judgment. And then the next thing God shows him is a, a calling for judgment by fire, a fire that's so hot that it devours not just the land and the portion, literally, the portion of the land, which was the, the, the inheritance of Israel, but even the great deep. In those days, Israel believed in their cosmology that beneath the earth, the springs of water that came up, there was a great body of water. And actually, there's some truth to that. There, we do think there are underground oceans of water beneath the earth. Um, but this, this water was the source, they believed, of all the earth's rivers and all the earth's seas, vast underground expanse of water. And this fire is so hot, it doesn't just burn up the surface, but it consumes and devours the great deep. And that, that, it's an escalating judgment, and, and Amos prays, O oh Lord, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And the Lord relented concerning these two judgments and said, it shall not be, verse 3. It's, this also shall not be, verse 6. We'll come to the third again, the second. So God gives these threats of judgment, and Amos takes them. He takes the revelation of God. He takes the threat of God's judgment. And so you have this kind of tension. God's promise to be the people of God's God forever. And yet this threat of obliterating judgment upon those people and Amos ties them together in the presence of God and stands between the people of God and the fury of God. And he offers prayer to God and says, Lord, have mercy. Sorry, could you sit? Where was I? And he presents these three reasons for mercy. First of all, because you are the sovereign Lord of the covenant, you're Yahweh Adonai. You're the one who shows mercy on whom you will show mercy. You're the God who took Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. Remember how God says that? I took Abraham. He was worshiping idols, the moon God, and so forth. And I took him. Abraham was nothing but sin, nothing but idolatry. And God took him. Took Abraham and made him into Abraham, the man of faith. And Amos is essentially pleading the name of the God of Abraham and saying, God, you, you had mercy upon Abraham then when there was nothing but sin. Well, why won't you have mercy on Abraham's seed now when there is nothing but sin? You're the sovereign Lord of the, the covenant. Then you're also the gracious Lord of the covenant. O oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? It's wonderful that Jacob, just like Abraham, he goes from Abraham to Abraham, and Jacob goes from Jacob to Israel, you remember. But Jacob is the name for Jacob the unregenerate, or at least the back, the, the very baby, immature, self-centered twister, a deceitful wretch of a man. And the word Jacob and small is only used one other place in the, in the New Testament, Old Testament, back in the book of Genesis when it's comparing Esau with Jacob, his younger brother. And God, you remember, determined, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. No surprise that God would hate Esau. The wonder is, why would God love Jacob? Jacob the twister. And yet, God, even after he becomes Israel, God delights to be called the God of Jacob. And God is saying, Amos is saying to God, are, are you not the God of Jacob, the God who had mercy in this deceitful wretch of Jacob? And if you had mercy in Jacob then, why won't you have mercy in Jacob now? Because if you don't, you will cease to be the God of Jacob. It's a bold prayer. You're the sovereign Lord of the covenant, 
and you're also the gracious Lord of the covenant, and then you're the, also the tender Lord of the covenant, how can Jacob stand? He's so small. He's weak. He's feeble. It, he's, 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 he's playing here on God's compassion. That God has an eye for the last, the lost, and the least. Not a sparrow falls dead without God's eye. Not a hair falls from your head. He, 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 he um, will not quench the smoking flax. A flax that was on fire and it, it's gone out. And the smoke rising, a little glowing ember. But there's no way you can rekindle that flax into fire again. It's, it's spent. And yet God won't snuff out even the little glowing ember in its dying nature. He won't crush the bruised reed, a reed that's broken and is irreparable from a human perspective. And yet God is tender toward its weakness. He knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. He has, he has a, a, an eye for the, for, for the weak and feeble things. And Amos capitalizes on that. He's the sovereign Lord of the covenant. He is the, he is the gracious Lord of Jacob. And he's also the God who's tender and compassionate to small things. And this whole prayer, it, it roots itself, do you see, in the character of God. It's, it's like... It's like when a tornado comes down. Where do you go when, you, when there's a tornado? You go down to the basement, right? And if in the basement, if there's a bathroom, all the better. You go into the bathroom. Why do you go into the bathroom? Because the bathroom and the, 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 the tub and the commode are attached to pipes. And those pipes go deep down into the earth. And so, um, though the tornado may sweep the house away, those things are grounded into the deep things of the earth and will be left when everything else is taken. And Amos here, when he prays, he grounds himself into the character of God. His prayer is like a pipe going down and down and down into the character of God. His prayer begins with God and ends with God, which is convicting to us because so often God is the, is the one thing that's barely present in our prayers. We spend so much time talking about our need and our difficulty and almost no time talking about our God. And Amos says it's better and the other, the other balance is better. It's like um, George Mueller, the famous orphan keeper, remember, and there was the time when he was in great need of money and he and his friend covenanted to pray for this money to be given. And they get down and knees and pray and, and George Mueller is so lost in worship he just starts worshiping God, confessing his sins, speaking of the glory and mercy of God, and he forgets to ask for the money. When he says amen, there's a knock on the door, and they go and answer the door, and there's a bag of money on the doorstep, and it's, it's, it's a bag of money that was to the penny, the amount of money they needed. And Mueller chuckled. He said, I forgot to ask for money. I was so caught up with God, but God didn't forget my need. And that's, in one, I think, one of the great purposes of prayer is not so much to draw God down to our need, but to draw ourselves to God in His fullness. So Amos, um, the God threatens judgment to stir up prayer, and God uses prayer to restrain judgment. Approach my soul, the mercy seat, where Jesus answers prayer. There humbly fall before his feet, for none can perish there. And yet, there is a sober word here. That though prayer, though God threatens judgment to stir up prayer, and though God uses prayer to restrain his judgment, yet prayer does not remove his judgment. In the third vision, this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. 
And the Lord said, Behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Period. And notice, there's no more prayer. God threatens once, and there's prayer, and God relents. God threatens again, and there's prayer, and God relents. And God comes with a third threat, and there's a full stop. This whole business of prayer begins with God and ends with God. It's very much like I, um, Abraham, remember, in Genesis 18. You don't have no time to go there, but you can look at it. Remember when God comes down and reveals to Abraham his purpose to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham begins this bargaining match with God. Well, what if there are, I don't know, 20 righteous there? And God says, I'll, not, I'll spare the city for the sake of 20 righteous. And the number goes down, 20 to 10, and so forth, all the way down. And Abraham gets to his final number. And God says, I will not spare, I will spare the city for the sake of so many righteous. And then God walks off. The, 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 the prayer match with Abraham begins with God as God reveals his purpose of judgment. And Abraham starts the bartering, but there becomes a final number when God says, that's it, and God leaves. And Sodom is consumed. And it's like that here. This prayer wrestling begins with God's Word and ends with God's Word, and the full stop comes, and Amos seems instinctively to know the time for prayer has stopped like that mysterious verse in 1 John. We should not pray for a sin leading to death. There's a time for prayer to stop, and I, I don't quite understand that verse here now, but it's, Amos seems instinctively to know that he's come to the end of the line, and his prayer stops, and judgment is coming. It's been delayed, but it is coming. And that's one of the, the great risks of being part of the covenant community of God. You can hear the gospel week in and week out. You can hear me and Kyle and Chris and other preachers proclaiming the, the everlasting love of God and His willingness to forgive sin when sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And you can kind of in your soul be going, yeah, 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 it's okay. And you, you, you're thinking, you know, I, I'll repent, but not yet. And the gospel of God's everlasting grace and mercy should never be a gospel that prompts you to presume. It was amazing message in all the world. You owe a debt you cannot pay. Christ pays a debt He did not owe. And God offers to forgive all of your sins. And God says, today, 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 if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. And yet, so often, God's people, externally members of the covenant, but the internal faith has never been there. The, the new life, the new birth has never come. The command, seek me and live, has never been obeyed. And the soul faced with the, the call of the gospel and the call of Sodom, and like Lot's wife, how many covenant children turn back? And with that look, they show the true GPS coordinates of their soul. It's not in Jerusalem. It's in Sodom. And the same God who said, where sin abound, grace does much more abound, also said, remember Lot's wife. The logic of the gospel does not make her example irrelevant to you. Because the God who uses prayer to restrain judgment never uses prayer to entirely remove it. There's a delay, but the delay is coming to an end. And so I want to encourage young people here this evening, maybe you're here, and you, if you're honest with yourself and honest to God, you know you've been hardening your heart to God. 
And God's all day long, God's been holding out his arms. He's, he's weeping like Jesus. How I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And tonight God says, I'm telling you one more time, come to me. Seek me and live this way to life. And maybe you're here this evening and you've got unconverted covenant children who are wayward and willful and wicked. And God says, remember, not just Lot's wife, remember Amos' prayer. Call upon God. It's never a vain thing to call upon God and say, Lord, have mercy. You're infinite. My little son, my little daughter, they're small. How could they bear up if you poured out your wrath upon them? Are you not the sovereign Lord of the covenant? Can't you turn their heart around in a moment, O oh God, if you just but unleash your, your sovereign power? Cause them to be born again. Take the tennis balls of God's promises and fire them back in God's face. One of the Puritans said, Would to God that I could pray with such earnestness that God would be embarrassed not to answer my prayers. But the earnestness does not come from in here. It comes from the promises of this book and the knowledge that God will be true to himself and true to the gospel and true to the threats of the judgment. And so, in prayer, we're just saying to God, Lord, be who you are, do what you will do, and have mercy, O God. And there's something immensely powerful when a creature on earth takes the words of the Creator by which He made everything out of nothing and takes those words and presents them back to God in prayer. Such words do not do nothing. They have the power to create everything, to call everything out of nothing and life out of death and dark and light out of darkness. And how many Christians like Augustine owe their salvation not just to God's mercy, but to their mother's prayers? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I need to hear this word myself. I'm sure many of you people do as well, O oh God. Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. For the threat of judgment is real, and yet the delay of judgment is there for the asking. As we pray for our land, we pray for our church, our denomination, and in this church family, and our own family, O God, that in your wrath you'll remember mercy and your covenant to all who belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen.